This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. The title of the talk is Evangelical Worship. And we should begin with a couple of definitions or definitional work. Um, Both of those words can be used in a variety of ways. So what is worship for the purposes of this talk? Worship has both a broad meaning and a narrow meaning. Broadly, it means uh, it, it really can include every act of obedience that we give ourselves to, right? That's what some people mean by worship is we... Um, I, all of life is worship. That's a very common uh, phrase. Uh, unfortunately, uh, while it's, I don't have any problem with it as such, unfortunately it's often used to, to, to uh, defend against the need to go to church, need to have a worship service a formal, in the more limited sense, a, a, a formal worship participation on the part of people. There's a lot of so-called Christians who... Um, are not part of an institutional church and think that that is uh, wrong and go to church very well by themselves. Thank you much. Well, um, we're going to use it in the narrow sense of the word to refer to organized times of corporate gatherings and churches for the purpose of communion with God through the means of grace that he's appointed, the preaching of the word, the observance of the Lord's Supper and baptism, prayers of the people and the fellowship of God's saints. That's what we're going to mean by worship. And then what do we mean by evangelical? That's another word that's loaded and can mean a whole host of different things. Um, I like this definition, though, because I had to look it up. because I thought, shoot, I don't even know what this word means. And it's a, uh, one definition online said, it, of or according to the teaching of the gospel or the Christian religion of or according to the teaching of the gospel or the Christian religion. Another way of saying that is of or according to God's word. Worship that is according to God's word. Evangelicals are most often distinguished as those who are committed to scripture. You heard that said several times in the various talks that one of the the principal um, discovery of, of the Reformation, which was understood by everybody to be an evangelical revival, was, the, was sola scriptura, that the Bible can be understood and that you can see, you, can, you discover the gospel in there and people have been hiding it from us. So of or according to God's word, um, evangelicals are those who are committed to scripture, they seek to order their lives around it or by it and they fight zealously to defend it from attack. Evangelicals are those who stand in the gap Um, defending scripture and the life of godliness from both heterodoxy, false believing, and and also heteropraxy, false practices. All things that are out of accord with God's word. An evangelical fill-in-the-blank then, evangelical sex, evangelical politics, an evangelical thing is something that is um, ordered as carefully as possible according to God's word. Um, now, Scripture, God's revealed truth, does come under attack. Um, it, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, after he gave his sermon and the people cried out, what can we do to be saved? And he gave them the answer to that question. It says he went on with many words um, to uh, solemnly testifying to them, and, and he kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. All generations since the fall of Adam have been perverse generations. Um, That is, they're twisted, out of accord with God's truth. um, And so that's generally true of all generations, but in each generation it has its peculiar perversities, its its peculiar attack on God's word, Um, its own way of suppressing the truth that God has revealed in unrighteousness. Evangelicals, then, are those who stand in the gap to defend Scripture at those points, the points where it's actually being attacked. It's no good saying, I'm an evangelical, because I, yay, yay, justification by faith. That's, that's easy. Evangelical, though, in its true sense, 
are those who are fighting today's battles defending Scripture. And because of their love and their commitment to Scripture, they have to defend it against real attacks. So in summation, evangelical worship is worship that's carefully ordered according to Scripture, and especially at the places where Scripture is under attack. Now, one more thing to say before we get into um, looking at those places where it's under attack and how we respond to them. Um, I want to say something about the nature of Christian worship. Scripture reveals to us who God is. And so it's hard to separate God from his word. Um, it is the principal means by which he communicates to us, who tells us who he is, what he's like. Um, and so attacks upon scripture are what? They're attacks upon God himself. Have you ever heard that all heresies, all false doctrines and teachings are ultimately a Trinitar- Trinitarian heresies? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Jake, have you heard that? Yeah, somehow they all trace back to an attack on God's person. And typically one of the persons of the Trinity. They sometimes can be the Trinity itself, the the very doctrine of the the threeness of God um, and his persons. Um, But as time has gone on and the church, um, in response to those false teachings, has understood God's word better and sort of nailed down the truth of it, the, uh, the attacks have gotten more sophisticated, and yet they're still Trinitarian in nature. Um, truth, is, truth doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not an abstract concept. Truth is a person. It's God. And so when there's attack that comes on, on the truth, it is an attack against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but also when we seek to believe according to God's word, where we, we're working to bring ourselves into conformity to himself, to his persons. Um, and so, and so that's true if, uh, in terms of doctrines, and it's true in terms of our practice, and in terms of uh, what we do, our habits, so the way we work out our beliefs. Um, we, we can either be attacking God, or we can be working to conform ourselves to him. So to be an evangelical at worship, or to be evangelical worshipers, is to, dis- is to stand with and defend Scripture. And when we do that, we're working to honor the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each in their respective roles. So here's a blanket statement, and it's going to be the, sort of the order, the, the structure for this talk. Evangelical worship is carefully, deliberately Trinitarian. Because to be working to defend scripture, to be carefully scriptural, is to be carefully Trinitarian. It is to observe who God is and to conform ourselves to him in his persons. So there's three persons in the Trinity, and so there's three points, three main points in this talk. And they are simply, how do we, how do we glorify the Father in our worship? How do we glorify the Son in our worship? How do we glorify the Spirit in worship. So first, the Father. How can we glorify the Father and confess Him um, in, in, as we give ourselves to corporate worship? What is God's fatherhood? What is it? Anybody have any answers to that question? How would you describe it? Absolutely. Top of the list, I'd say. Authority. He's the top. I don't want to be disrespectful, but he's top dog. God the Father. And it's so clear from Scripture. That's no violation of of Jesus and his godness, his own authority. But it's clear that the the Son submits to, in an economic sense, um, to to his Father. And um, loves to do so. So the father has authority. He gives this authority to his son. By virtue of his son's obedience to him, he has blessed him with all authority and all power. But do you know that there's coming a day when the son will hand it back to his father so that his father can be all and in all? That's what the scriptures say. And so the son's not going to lose his authority as he does so, but it, he, will, he will forever submit to his father perfectly and do his will and give him glory 
So authority is top of the list. What else? What are some other attributes of God's fatherhood? Some words to define it. You, you know, in Genesis 1, we know that Jesus was there in the beginning, and he helped create the world with his father. That's clear from John 1. But somebody, somebody made this statement in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and likeness. Let us, let, somebody is making that statement. I think it's clear that from there that God is taking initiative, the Father is taking initiative. Even though the Son is there and through Him is being made all things, um, the Father takes initiative. I think that's another um, attribute of fatherhood is initiation or leadership. What's another aspect of fatherhood? Yeah, yeah. I think that's closely associated with authority. Seems to be connected there. How about uh, justice or wrath since the son? Yeah. Jesus, yeah, absolutely. So there is, there is holiness in the Father that's expressed how? In terms of laws and commands. He, he gives laws. He orders the world, and that's, I think, an aspect of his fatherhood. And therefore, consequently, he judges the world in accordance with those laws, those demands that he makes. And what fathers, are there fathers in here? Fathers, what do we, what do, we do with our children? It's like the essence of time spent with children is what? Discipline. Discipline. Constant activity, especially with young, young children. Um, the father is the one who discip- a father disciplines his children. He, that's true because God the Father before us disciplines his children. Now, that's, those are attributes of God's fatherhood. And those are, if we're going to glorify the Father, we have to, we have to find a way of bringing those things to the fore in worship. Those attributes of his. Um, very, this, that's all wonderful. We can, I, I want to make it very painful, though, for us. <laughs> very practical, this talk. Um, how, what, has God not vested his authority in his creatures? His father, has he vested his fatherly authority in his creatures? Who, which creatures? Humans, man, or men? <laughs> Principally speaking, in men, right? In men, males. He has, he has marked the sexes um, and differentiated between them. It's not like a mother doesn't have any aspect of fatherly, uh, reflecting God's fatherhood in her as she disciplines her children. I'm not saying that. But... She's not the principal bearer of the authority of God in this world. Man is. God has, vest, or God has vested his, his fatherhood in men. Um, Ephesians three fourteen to 15 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, the NSB says family, but it says in the Greek more accurately, from, every, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. God has vested his own fatherhood in creation, principally in the male sex. And he has said in his word, very clearly, that he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to be silent in the church. And, he, and so that's just a lovely, that's a lovely thing for us to admit and own, and we just love that, right? It's so fun to go around to our neighbors and remind them of God's teaching on that point, which indicates that we all know that this is a doctrine that's despised, a doctrine that's under attack. So if we're going to be evangelicals, this is a place we're going to stand, it's a place we're going to defend, it's a place we're going to carve out for ourselves and be the champions of it in this world. What is attacking God's fatherhood today? 
Who? How does it look? What, what word, what name do you give to it? Feminism. Feminism? Is feminism a heresy? It, is it a it's a Trinitarian heresy. It's a heresy particularly directed at God the Father. You can say God the Son too because he's vested, he's, the Son is a male. He's vested his fatherly authority in his Son. Um, I don't, don't ask me to explain how that works. It's a mystery, but, but it's true. God has, has uh, invested his own authority in his Son. And has and has and has revealed himself in sexual terms, in in a masculine form. And this is under attack today. Feminism tries to kill all patriarchy, to eradicate it, get it out of the way. What are Colin or anybody? What are feminism's tenets? What is what are what's its platform? Yes, to erase distinctions between the sexes. Uh, anything else? You could say that anything a man can do, women can do that at least as well, if not better. Listen to this. Um, this is by Donna Steichen in, the, in Crisis Magazine. Here's how she, she defines feminism's teachings. Men and women tend to behave differently because of social conditioning, not because there are innate biological and psychological differences between them. That's a tenet of feminism. Social conditioning is what has brought about the perceived apparent differences between men and women in this world. So the, erasing distinctions. The chief reason women have been less often represented in the first ranks of public achievement and scholarship, the arts, politics, and war, and war, is that in every human society of which we have evidence throughout all of recorded history, they were repressed by a patriarchal power structure maintained through force and indoctrination. Because large numbers of children in a family constitute both a barrier to the advancement of women and a threat to our ecology, small families should be cult a cultural norm. It is unjust that the consequences of sexual behavior are biologically unequal for men and women. <laughs> as much as possible, those consequences must be equalized through medical technology and reformed cultural attitudes. What's the title of the author? This is Donna Steichen of, in Crisis Magazine. To find meaning in their lives, women should look first to their careers rather than to their role as life givers. <laughs> That's an amazing statement. <laughs> Cultural barrier. So rather than their role as life givers, culture bearers, nurturers, and educators of the next generation of human beings. Women who regard themselves as mothers first are wasting their education and smothering their talents by staying home to raise their children. These, I think she's actually, she's writing in the opposition to feminism, but this is her, uh, this is her representation of the feminist doctrine, um, strategy, objective. And you know that those pressures are real. You recognize those concepts, you've seen them, right? At work in this world. Have we seen them at work in the church? Yes. Have we seen them at work in the church? Yes. You're nodding your head, so how? Where? Singing in choirs. Singing in choirs? Music. How so? Well, there, are women, there are some wonderful women singers, and there's attention on their leadership, what role they can play to stand out. Are you saying that, that a woman singing in church um, in a visible way is, or up on the platform, is a violation of God's fatherhood? I'm saying I, there's tension there. So it, it, could, could, it could be. Okay. Have you seen it be? Definitely. Where have you seen it be? Charismatic church. How so? Um, usually instead of a um, man leading... A 
woman is one to be the authority of um, leading everyone in worship. That's how I came up as, you know, leading leading the choir, asking everybody to write, you know, doing everything yep. to lead the congregation in those kinds of ways. Yep. So clear women in leadership. Is that a problem? Yes. Why is that a problem? It's common today um, to respond to somebody saying that's a problem. Here's the immediate response you'll get is, show me that in scripture. She's just, she's just singing. I'm with you, brother, on preaching. I'm with you on uh, being an elder or an ordained officer or deacon in the church. Yeah, we don't allow women there, but she's just singing. We're just singing to God. If you look in those congregations, it's rare to see the it's rare to see the men singing louder than the women or the husbands leading the wives. So if it's a very feminine worship being led by the woman, then you see the same thing permeated. Or you're gonna get feminine men um, you know to be led. Good point. Good point. It is not enough to be biologically male in front of a congregation of, or in life. The, forget worship for a minute. It is not sufficient for you to be biologically female or biologically male and yet act like a female if you're male and act like a male if you're female. That is sin. It, we're commanded in Scripture to act like men and be strong men. We are also warned against effeminacy in one of those lists that Paul gives of sins that cause us to um, not be in the kingdom of heaven. We are, to, of, we are to confess the goodness of God's created order, his wisdom in making us male or female, and how we dress, how we carry ourselves, how we live, the things we do, um, both men and women. God was not dumb in, making, in designing the world the way he did and making us either male or female. That's God's wisdom and his love and his blessing. And if we're going to be evangelical, that's just what Joseph's talking about, I assume, over there. If we're going to be evangelical sexual beings, it's to, it's to conform ourselves to God's word, to stand there proudly in that place that's hated and under attack, and, um, and hold fast to it because it's life. Yeah. Um, First Corinthians 11, where it speaks of a woman when she prophesies or prays. Um, I guess the choir was mentioned. Um, so they're, they're, I'm, I'm supposing you'll get to that, but um, what is the place of a woman in worship? That's an excellent question. I've got a couple of emails in my inbox that I'm supposed to respond to, and I, I don't know how to respond to it. Here's what I do know. For a long time now, we have been degenerating a little slower than the world. We've been going in that direction. Um, we see where the world is going. The fruit of feminism is the recent um, decision of the Supreme Court. Before that was abortion, before that was contraception, and we've been sliding down this path of the, the feminist agenda where we're eradicating all distinctions between men and women and getting rid of all of the consequences of, of sex in our lives. Um, and that has led us to sexual anarchy, sexual chaos. And the church, for whatever reason, I assume to be liked, to fit in, to not stand out, to not be evangelical, <laughs> has not stood in the, in the gap and said, oh, no, 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 you, you don't understand. This, God, God has made the world in a certain way. We celebrate that, and that's what we're about. We're about the opposite of what the world is going after. We provide the solution to the problem of sin and the problem of disorder and the problem of rebellion in the world. And, but instead, so what we should do, not to avoid your question, it's a very good question, it's very pertinent. Um, 
but what we should do is not ask how much can we get away with. First and foremost, we should ask um, how can we celebrate and make absolutely clear that God has put, vested his authority in men? And how can we sign that to the people so it's clear that that's a good thing? And, and we talk about the blessing of it. And we don't hide it. We don't apologize for it. Pastors are often apologizing for their own authority in their preaching. They say, they make it clear, especially when you get to passages about men and women. They're like, I'm sorry the scripture says this. I'm sorry this is so nasty for me to talk about. And I'm so sorry. And I know this is awful. And I know it's difficult. But why do you just admit to husbands? <laughs> this, is the, this is about as good as it gets. That's like in the best churches. Um, I know it's a caricature, but it's, it's about how the sermon goes uh, if it's on Ephesians 5. Um, the questions about the, the, the here's what I would say, uh, Matthew. I'm not opposed to a woman praying in worship. I'm not opposed to having a woman read scripture in worship. I'm not opposed to a woman singing an offertory in worship. That question, though, is, I think, hard to answer because it's too particular, too specific. That what has to be answered before that is the large question of the goodness of sexuality, the distinctions of the roles. We have to be able to unapologetically affirm them, yes. teach people the blessing of them. And here's what I've experienced. We used to have women playing in the band. Caitlin Henry. Remember Caitlin Henry playing viola in the band and the Christmas Spectaculars? We used to have that. I, don't, I didn't feel at all guilty. I don't think it was a violation. Is why they were there to add beauty to what was clearly masculine and, and its leadership and structure. It wasn't a threat to the prerogative, or not the prerogative, the duty of men to lead. Having Caitlin there, or Anna Farnham, but here's what happened. In the course of teaching them that it was good to have children, they had children. <laughs> and they got busy. <laughs> so it's like you come to our church and say, oh, they have a thing against women. No. <laughs> They're all busy obeying God. We don't, I, I don't want to make demands of poor Caitlin. Andrew's already coming to play in the band. What she's, you know, she probably would come if I asked her to. And from time to time, I do ask her. She's actually told me no, and they're too busy. Um, but that's just a reality, is if we're in the, in, in the main, we start giving ourselves to obeying God, decisions get made like that. It's, it's a non-answer, but it, oh, it's good. something. Um, but I'm not opposed. I, here's an, Don Spady is the most gifted singer, one of the most gifted singers I've ever met, I've ever known. She's in our church. And I cannot get Don to sing an offertory. And it's because she's so busy with her children. And we talk about it from time to time. And she feels guilty. And I want her to. And we all want to hear her sing because it's such a blessing. Um, but she's busy obeying God. And that's a, that's a good thing. A simple point to make from this um, an application or a principle to lay down. If we're going to be evangelicals in our evangelical worshipers or evangelical in our worship, and we're going to glorify the Father, we are not going to hide male leadership. We're not going to be apologetic about it. We're going to put it up front. We're going to light it on fire. <laughs> and there's all kinds of ways we have to apply that in the details, but that's what we have to do. We have to have, you're going to, I don't know the situations some of you are in. Matthew, you're a pastor. I don't know what you've got at your disposal in your church. But I know a lot of churches, they look around, and the only ones that know how to play the piano are women. And this is a, a, a generalization, but generalizations are usually true. They play piano like women. And there's, a, there's lacking a strength often to their leadership on the piano that a man who's acting like a man or playing the piano like a man would bring. And um, 
Hold on, let me get my bearings. What some of us are going to have to do is start to look around at the young men and say, learn to play the piano. I sense that you're musically talented. Learn the piano, or learn the guitar, or I see that you have some skill on the guitar. Get up there and lead us. <laughs> We're going to follow you, and I'm going to teach you to lead, and you're going to grow on the guitar. A few years down the road, this is going to be working. In the meantime, we're, we're, we're doing this because we are committed to putting men up front and lighting them on fire. <laughs> Does that make sense? We have to do some of these things to reclaim what's been lost. Oh, man, there's more than can be said about that. He didn't come in because it's time to be done, did he? Okay, good. <sighs> we, okay, we're going to make fatherhood authority, fatherliness, conspicuous in the church. I don't care about the details, really. And I, I'm not an absolutist about it. I just want to be conspicuous, conspicuously male-led. Mm-hmm. And, and that, again, that doesn't mean it's enough to be biologically male and to have a disproportionate number of males up front. They have to be men. They have to act like men and be strong. Until that happens, we're not confessing the fatherhood of God. We're not glorifying the Father in worship. We're not standing in the gap defending his fatherhood from the attacks of the feminist heresy. Okay, secondly, how do we glorify the Son and confess him in worship? Well, you heard a wonderful um, talk last night from Nate Harlan about the atonement. And one of the central principles or things that he had to say was that it's impossible to understand the atonement or appreciate it or have it applied to you until you understand what? Yeah, against your sin. Against your sin. His, his death makes no sense without sin. And so here's my very simple principle about how to glorify the Son in worship. Make sin conspicuous. Talk about it. Talk about um, the, the depravity of man. So just like we've tried in, in, in our attempt to be liked by the world, we've succumbed also to the pressure that Nate Har- Harlan talked about to minimize sin, to keep silent about it, to pretend as if it's not something to lead with in evangelism. And so we, um, you know that he said that the the pressure, of course, is increasingly that talk of sin is going to be hate speech, labeled hate speech. Um, It's going to be uh, bigotry. It's going to be discrimination. So there's intense pressure. I understand the pressure. Um, And so we can either do one of two things. We can either minimize it, hide it, pretend as if it's not, you know, as important as it is, or we can put it up there and we can light it on fire. And so I have a very simple solution um, to, well, I guess we should talk a bit more about why is, why is it important? Let's just remind ourselves, why, what did Nate teach us? Why is it important for sin to be understood? Um, in relationship to Jesus. Why is it important? Zero sin. And we don't need a savior. Because we're okay. It's the meaning of the atonement. There is no shame or guilt of our wrongdoing against God. Therefore there's we don't really care if there was a sacrifice for us because it's just because if there's no knowledge that we have anything wrong with us. How sinful are we? You're totally. Yeah, but that's an abstract kind of idea, totally. What does Scripture's words, not doctrinal concepts, those are good and important, but what, are, what does Scripture say? Every equation of our heart is good, always. Only. 
evil or wicked continually. What else does it say? Yeah. Have you read Romans 3? Listen to this. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And that's the nice part. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you, can you know God apart from agreeing with that statement and accusing yourself before God? Self-accusing. You've heard of people turning themselves in for crimes. <laughs> have, have you turned yourself in for the crimes mentioned there? If you haven't, then you have not yet known the mercy and forgiveness of God. You cannot have Christ without first agreeing with God and taking his side against you. As he defines it in his word. With those words, asps and grave and deceit. Here's a really wonderful um, paragraph. I keep coming back to this paragraph a lot. Uh, it's so helpful. And this is a pastor back in the 1800s who was a, a good man. And he was, uh, there was a great Revival. There were great revivals sweeping the nation, but their things were going, getting out of hand, and there was a disproportionate number of false converts. I mean, it, it, there, long story, but there was, this man was trying to explain the difference between a false and a true um, convert. And here's what he said. The manner in which people obtain a false hope... So... In the absence of sin, you give people Jesus, they obtain a false hope. But the manner in which people obtain a false hope is generally this. They first believe that God is reconciled to them. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They first believe that God is reconciled to them, and, they, and then are reconciled to him on that account. But if they thought that God was still displeased with and determined to punish them, they would find their enmity, their... They're out of fellowshipness with God to revive. They would lose their salvation. They would, have, they would feel suddenly like, oh, he doesn't love me. It's, it's, so as long as you're telling them God loves you, don't worry, God loves you. And as long as they hear that message, they're assured. But when suddenly something enters into their minds, oh, but maybe he's not. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe that sin that I committed, he's displeased with. The minute that comes into their mind, they find that their sense of assurance and security with God um, is gone. On the contrary, that's a false conversion. On the contrary, the Christian is reconciled to God because he sees the holiness of the law, which he has broken, and God's justice in punishing him. He takes part with God against himself, cordially submits to him, and this when he expects condemnation. He is reconciled because he is pleased with the character of God. The false convert because he hopes God is pleased with him. There's a lot to chew on there. It's in a book called Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. Um, but I found that to be very, a profound statement about the nature of true and false hope. If we're going to glorify the Son in worship, if we're going to confess him before the nations, if we're going to, um, if we're going to hold him up in our worship services, we are going to maximize sin. We're going to go scriptural on it. And here's a very practical application for us. Um, I don't know 
many, most of you attend worship here, and so you're used to this. But it's, it's a pretty rare thing. We have a prayer of confession. We confess our sins. We've institutionalized sin being dealt with in the service. That's not a total solution, but it is a good practical step to take. So far as you have influence in your churches, um, try to be an advocate for a prayer of confession where sin is acknowledged. And we preface our prayer of confession with, a, uh, with something from Scripture that motivates us or reminds us of the need of it. Either a statement about God's law or a statement about his wrath or a statement of his invitation. If you come to me, I will forgive you something. Um, and I found that to be helpful. But to institutionalize the, uh, a, a, a confession of sin in the service, it's become to me one of the most precious things about worship. If I go to a church service, I can put up a whole lot of things. But if there's not an opportunity for to me to humble myself with uh, the saints around me before God then um, I feel like I've missed out on something important. It's, it's sad to me. Jake's nodding his head. He has the same experience. Now, it's not enough to just have that. Um, well, actually, I wanted to read to you something from... Uh, this, is, this is basically John Calvin's uh, lit- liturgy in Geneva. And so this is the very first thing they would have done in worship... This is an English translation. Bear with me as I read it because it's funny, old English. Uh, I'll try to translate on the fly, but the words look so bizarre. Um, the, the Sunday morning service, this is how it begins. Imagine this, okay? Just imagine. When the congregation is assembled at the hour appointed, the minister useth one of these two confessions, or like in effect, exhorting the people diligently to examine themselves, following in their hearts the tenor of his words. And this is a confession of our sins framed to our time out of the ninth chapter of Daniel. Listen to this. This is how the worship of the saints in Geneva at the time of the Reformation began. With a prayer like this. O Lord, which art mighty and dreadful, thou that keepest covenant and showest mercy to them that love thee and do your commandments, we have sinned, we have offended, we have wickedly and stubbornly gone back from, the laws, from your laws and precepts. We would never obey your servants, the prophets that spoke in your name, to our, to spoke in your name to, your, to our kings and princes, to our fathers and to all the people of our land. If we had been there back in those days, we would, we would have not obeyed them, either, obeyed you either. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Unto us pertains nothing but open shame, as it is, as it is, Y.S. Come to pass this day unto our miserable country of England, yea, unto all our nation, whether they, oh, so this is actually the John Knox's um, liturgy approved by Calvin. So he's referring to England. As it has come to pass this day unto our miserable country of England, Yes, unto all our nation, where, wherever they fare, because they were in exile on the continent, wherever they fare, be they far or near, through all lands wherein they are scattered for the offenses that they and we have committed against you, so that the curses and punishments which are written in the law are now poured upon us, and you have performed those words wherewith you did menace us and our rulers that governed us in bringing the same plagues upon us which, were, which before were threatened. And yet notwithstanding both they and we proceed in our iniquity and cease not to heap sin upon sin. For they which once were well instructed in the doctrine of your gospel are now gone back from the obedience of your truth and are turned again to that most abominable idolatry from which from the which they were once called by the lively preaching of your word. And we, alas, to this day do not earnestly repent, us or our former wickedness, neither do we rightly consider the heaviness of your displeasure. Such is your just judgments, Lord, that you punish sin by sin and man by his own inventions, so that there can be no end of iniquity except you prevent us with your undeserved grace. Therefore, convert us, Lord, and we shall be converted. 
For we do not offer up our prayers trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold mercies. And although thou hast once of thy especial grace delivered us from the miserable thraldrum of error and blindness, called them out of Roman Catholicism, and called us many times to the sweet liberty of the gospel, which we notwithstanding have most shamefully abused, in obeying rather our own lusts and affections than the ad admonishments of your prophets, yet we beseech you, we ask you once again for your namesake, to pour some, to, to power some comfortable drop of thy accustomed mercies upon us, to pour some comfortable drop of your accustomed mercies upon us. Incline thine ears and open thine eyes to be, to, to behold the, the grievous plagues of our country, the continual sorrows of our afflicted brethren and our woeful banishment, and that our afflictions and just punishments be an, abomin an admonition and warning to other nations amongst whom we are scattered, that with all reverence they may obey your, your holy gospel, lest for like contempt in the end, like or worse plagues fall upon them. Wherefore, o, wherefore, o Lord, hear us, O Lord, forgive us, O Lord, consider and tarry not over long, but for thy dear Son, Jesus Christ's sake, be merciful unto us and deliver us. So shall it be known to all the world that thou only art the selfsame God that ever showeth mercy to all such as call upon thy holy name. Now, if we did something like that, it'd be completely scandalous on the one hand, completely offensive, completely preposterous, completely unreasonable, completely whatever. And yet, imagine then coming back with, hold on, holding up Jesus Christ's assurance of pardon from his word. I mean, just imagine if you're willing to go low and confess your sins to the Father, or imagine the, hearing the Father say, I have forgiven you in Christ Jesus, and you're my sons, and I love you, and I have forgotten your sin, I've removed it as far as the east is from the west, and Jesus becomes very sweet. And so, the very best way I, I know of to bring Jesus back into evangelical worship or in, into worship is to bring sin back into worship. It is to confess sin, to acknowledge it. Calvin would have ended his sermons with some similar kind of prayer. He would say, now, Lord, can you think of how they would go, Jake? At the, you can, if you find books of Calvin's sermons, they all end with like a, a prayer, and it's like, talking about our sins. Help us to know our sins and to know your, how greatly you're displeased with us so that we can better repent of them and turn to you by faith. If we're going to glorify the Son in worship, if we're going to confess him, we're going to begin to confess the depravity of man and the just judgments of God so that Christ can be apprehended by us, by men who come to, to worship with us um, in faith. If you want to glorify Christ, we, we have to work to bring men low. Um, you'll notice also in the flow of a service, if you attend here, you'll notice that we begin with God's, some, some aspect of his holiness, typically, um, some reminder of, of his glory, of his power, of his nature. You typically, if, you're going to, if you were going to attribute it to one of the persons of the Trinity. It would be like starting with God the Father. Remember, and therefore we remember his law. We remember who he is. We remember his holiness. We see ourselves in light of it. And so the natural response is to confess our sins. So we do. And then we have his son lifted up as the solution, the remedy for our sins. Um, and then we give ourselves to his word. And that's, I think, a good Trinitarian flow. It's a, it's a gospel flow to the service. I'd recommend it to you. Um, then lastly, you heard me uh, really give away this point in, in there before we closed this morning's uh, 
session. But if we're going to, how do we glorify the Holy Spirit and confess Him in our worship? If we're going to do that, um, I, I said that a good way to do it is to embrace the Psalter, to start singing the Psalms again. And here's why I'd say it. Who wrote the Bible? What's the catechism answer? Holy men who are taught or inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but is that all of the Bible or only part of the Bible? The Holy Spirit is, is ultimately the author of Scripture. But did, is there a part of his work that we find difficult to embrace or that is, is especially despised today? If there is, it's the Old Testament. It's the part that where we think, well, there's so many puzzling things there, and there's so many things that I find hard to, to accept. There's so many, in all of that, um, it seems to me that the best way to understand the, 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 the apparent difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God was angry. This is what Knight Harlan said in the, in the old times. And then he sent Jesus so he didn't have to be angry anymore. And... And so there could be no worries about his wrath anymore. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the ways. And so we, the Psalms, by the way, are full of all of those, those aspects of the Old Testament which we find uncomfortable. What are they? Judgment. Judgment. What else is there in the Psalms that's very uncomfortable? And imprecatory Psalms. Yeah, so not only judgment, but where we're calling down judgment on people <laughs> in a very zealous and specific way. What else is there? Lament, like the song we sung earlier. Why is that hard? Because we don't have... We have microwaves. <laughs> yeah. You know what? It requires us to face our sin and the wrath of God and deal with it. And the first lines of that song it's, we let ourselves think that God could ever possibly be angry with us, and why? We have no idea why he would be. It just seems so unchristian. So it's like, where's, where's your faith, David? Right. You just need to believe in Jesus. Gee, David, you're a thousand times worse than you could possibly imagine, but Jesus is so, in, you know, a thousand times better than you could possibly imagine, and... You just need to believe in Jesus. Don't worry, David. Jesus has accomplished everything you could not. This is what people teach today. The best people. And what it is, is like, it's not dealing with reality. It's not dealing with, nobody's helped by it. Nobody who really knows their sin is at all encouraged by that. What they need well, is. We actually are as robbed of assurance because we're not Christian enough. If, we, if you feel the weight of your sin and you're inclined to lament like that over your sin, it's because something's wrong with you. Yes. You don't have faith. But if you would read the Psalms, you would find that now you're actually normal. You're just normal with the best of them. Yeah. A man after God's own heart. And the Holy Spirit inspired that. If we're going to glorify the Holy Spirit, I can't think of a better way, practically, than to bring the Psalms back into worship. It's so purifying. It would help in a thousand ways <laughs> improve us, improve our worship, improve our lives. Ways we don't even know about yet. But... It's, it's, we've done a little bit of work now on the Psalms, just the first ten, and they are so full of this. I never knew this about the first ten Psalms until we got into them, until we started singing them together, and it's just like, I know that there's the hurdle of learning new songs in worship, and I, I think I've learned to read the congregation on, and to know when they're struggling to, to learn a new song and when they're struggling to embrace a new song. And there's been quite a lot of struggling to embrace the new psalms. And I completely sympathize. There's a lot of hand-raising that goes on with hymns. There's not been a lot of hand-raising that's gone on with the psalms. Today was the first, Psalm 2, 
seem to like people suddenly let it into their heart or something for some reason today. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've noticed that it's like hard to, hard to identify, hard to accept, hard to embrace, hard to own the Psalms. It's like, wow, is that really in there? I, I can just imagine your thoughts. Is that really what the Psalm says? That's what my wife told me she, when she was first singing them. She was like, I found myself thinking, I wish he had read the psalm first because <laughs> I find that hard to believe. But lo and behold, there it is. You know, that idea at least is right there. Anyway, if we're going to love the Holy Spirit, if we're going to defend him, um, he's bodacious in the psalms. I, I, I've said before, you know that lovely verse in Romans, um, I, I don't know Romans like I should, so I don't know the chapter or verse, but it, where it talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us. We, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. Is that eight? Yes. We don't even know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and he intercedes on our behalf with groanings that are too deep for words. And it's, a, it's a wonderful verse, so assuring of God's mercy and kindness to us. I ha but I, I say that the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit, actually does want us to learn to pray as we should and has given us the Psalms to teach us how to do it. And the, the Psalms are full of things we would, we would never in a thousand years think were right to say to God. But we have that help and that assurance and that guide from God himself who loves to, his people to pray. And Jesus owned those prayers for himself, and we're to follow him. He's our master. If we're going to bring the Holy Spirit back into worship, I think a great way to begin is to bring his psalms into our singing. I think we're supposed to be done, but let me just close with... Um, let me just close with a final application and, or admonishment, and that is it's very possible to find a way of doing all those things. Um, bringing maleness and fatherhood to the fore, talking about sin in worship, um, having the Psalms. It's, it's completely possible to have those things in our worship and um, and yet have them in such a way that it doesn't there's no edge to them. Like a, a, in, a, in a throwback sort of way. You saw I read to you from a book with some old sounding words, these and thous. It's per perfectly possible to create a church that's sort of like a museum piece to a former era. And, and in so doing, it's sort of safe. People can kind of accept it because this is a historical. And you know, this, there's, I can get behind tradition, and I can get behind history, and 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 it and it kind of undercuts the heat to have things feel and sound old. There's even a way I think of having men up front um, acting like men and, and demonstrating their visible leadership, um, and yet it not be felt, not be a a, a true evangelical statement. <laughs> Remember I said it's like we don't fight the battles of yesterday. That's not what an evangelical is. An evangelical is somebody who is affirming those truths that are attacked, the goodness of them, the rightness of them today, in such a way that people notice. And it's the putting it up front and lighting it on fire approach. That's what an evangelical is. And so that all, by what I mean is, it's very tempting um, to, to read wonderful things from the past, wonderful sermons from the past, and if you're an aspiring preacher, to, the, to learn to preach that way. And it won't have, it's completely safe, because it sounds like something somebody would have said 200 years ago, and people are different today. And they can kind of let you enter into that character, and they, they escape the heat of it. You can have the Psalms. Um, this is why I said we looked into all this, the various Psalter options that were at our disposal, but we didn't find any that allowed us to have choruses. And without choruses and bridges and 
things like that in, in the music, we can't, we can't really work with the instrumentation that we have. And we've chosen that instrumentation because it's the instruments that people know. And we want to use the, the language that people speak today, not so that we can accommodate them and make them feel comfortable, but so we can maximize the discomfort of wickedness. That's what relevance is. You want to be relevant. Maximize the offense of the gospel. And so f be warned, uh, be cautious or wary of the possibility of having these things, but having them in such a way that it, it ends up just being boring. To, you know, it's like not, it just doesn't have any, it doesn't land. There's no, no heat felt. Um, if we're going to be evangelical, we're going to have visible, uh, visible m male leadership that's not going to be throwback. It's going to be today. Um, it, we're going to have confessions of sin. They're real sins that we struggle with. We're going to have the Psalms, and we're going to work to conform our lives to the Spirit in them as we sing them. And we're going to try to do that in a way that's relevant. This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.